0: Reading from verse 66 down through verse 69. John chapter 6, verse 66 down through verse 69. We will read these responsively. I will read the even verses alone. We'll read the odd verses, verses 67 to 69, out loud in unison and together. The Bible says there, beginning in verse 66, For that time many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. Then said Jesus unto the twelve, Will ye also go away? Then Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. And we believe and are sure that Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. This morning we're going to look at a title that is a question. Here is the question, why are you following Jesus? Why are you following Jesus? And I hope today through the title and through the sermon we'll be able to evaluate our own hearts individually... And seek out any impurities in our following Christ to be able to eliminate those and follow Him for the right reasons. Let's pray this morning. God, I do pray You'd help us as we consider the Scriptures this morning. Lord, as we weigh them up against our life. Lord, I pray that uh, strong doctrine will be taught. Lord, that uh, conviction will be brought about through an understanding of Your Word. And God, that not only conviction, but change. Lord, conviction without change is a very scary thing because it means we're willing to be convicted without actually doing anything with it. And so, Lord, where you put your finger on areas where we need change, may we be pliable and malleable in your hands. May we be like that potter on the wheel, uh, that rather the clay on the wheel, and you, you're the potter. Help us, Lord, to be comfortable with uh, a change and be comfortable with being more like you. I pray, God, today you'd help us to see our errors and our following You and reveal those to us and help us to do it out of a pure heart. In Jesus' name, Amen. You can be seated. In the beginning of John 6, going back a couple of weeks, we find um, uh, Jesus and His disciples on their way to take a vacation. They were wore out, they were tired... They had been doing a lot of service for other people and to other people. And Jesus looked at his disciples and he said, you all need a break. I need a break. Let's find a a quiet desert place and let's get alone and kind of catch our breath. And they get to the desert place. They turn around and this multitude of people comes pouring at them. How many people? We're not talking about a dozen. We're not talking about a couple of hundred. We're talking about 5,000 men and all their women and children could have been Close to fifteen to 20,000 people, a, a NBA stadium filled with folks uh, came pouring in their direction and I can just see the dismay of the disciples. They were tired, and they were afraid, they were exhausted and uh, they were mentally ready for a vacation and now they had to put that on hold as the compassionate Christ welcomed the crowd and began to teach them and to love on them, to heal their sick and to... And and to minister to them. After some time, he looked at his disciples and he said, The crowd's hungry, we need to feed them. And they pulled a little lad out of the crowd and took five loaves and two small fishes, and Jesus fed, buffet style. He fed the crowd with all that, with, with just that little bit of food. He fed them all. So much so, there were 12 baskets of food remaining. We call that a miracle. A miracle. You say, How did Christ? Do that. The answer is, He's God. He can do whatever He wants. He's not limited by the laws of physics. He's not limited by any of the laws of science. He created the laws. He gets to bend them and change them at His will because He is God. And He fed the multitudes with the fishes and the loaves. And then He uh, sent the multitude away, put His disciples in a boat, sent them across from Tiberius over toward Capernaum. He himself then departed into a mountain so that he could walk with the Lord through prayer as the night hours ticked away. You know the story, how it unfolds. It was what we looked at last week. The disciples get out in the Sea of Galilee and the sea becomes tumultuous. The waves become unbearable. The boat is rocking in the water. The fishermen on board who knew the sea oh so very well became frightened and afraid for their own life. And in the middle of the night, the Bible tells us in Mark, in the fourth watch of the night, between 3 and 6 a.m., Christ came walking on the water. The Bible says He would have passed by... But they called out to Him. That was last week's sermon. We talked about uh, how to handle the Savior when He comes walking by through our storms. And that Jesus entered the boat and the, uh, the storm immediately ceased. And John tells us that as soon as He got in the boat, they were immediately at the other side. You say, how did that work? Maybe the storm cleared up and there was the shore. Maybe they were right that close all along. Maybe Christ moved the boat from one end to the other. He's God again in the flesh. He could have done whatever He wanted. I don't know which one it was, but nonetheless, the storm ended and they were there in Capernaum. Now, uh, 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 at this point in Christ's ministry, He was at His most popular spot. If I could use a social media term, He would have had more Twitter followers at this point than any other point in his ministry. He was popular. I mean, he had just fed all those people. He had fed the crowds. He had been healing folks. Uh, he was a show to be seen. People were coming out of the towns and mobs and groves. They wanted to see Jesus uh, do something else. And to many people, he was nothing more than a sideshow. He was nothing more than maybe just another prophet, but he was, he was popular, he was popular, but at the end of John 6, he's not so popular. He's not so popular. These same people would turn and walk away. They would disown him. They would no longer follow him. They would no longer want to talk about him in a positive way. They would want to have nothing to do with him. How could Christ go from being the most popular human being on the planet to death and crucifixion just a short time later? Where did the crowds go? The answer is simple. While many were following Jesus, they were following Him for the wrong reasons. The wrong reasons. In our text we read just a few minutes ago there in John 6, verse 66 down through 70, we saw where the large portion of His disciples, they turned and walked away. They turned and they walked away. Why did they leave Him? Through the sermon today we'll see many reasons, but in short, they left him because they were being uh, uh, they were following him for selfish reasons. Now, let me say this morning that many people want part of church and I use the term church loosely there. they, they want to be labeled as a disciple of Christ, but they are really not willing to take up their cross, do the hard thing and follow Christ through thick and thin. Why is it that some follow Christ? Well, some follow because of status, status. Many years ago, it was the in thing to go to church. I I uh, occasionally trying to watch some wholesome TV. A lot of it out there isn't really wholesome. I'll turn on the Andy Griffith show. I love the Andy Griffith show. And and uh, most of it uh, is is innocent. Uh, probably 99% of it's innocent and clean, but um in there, you hear references of going to church regularly. That was 50, 60 years ago. That was in. You went to church on Sunday. And didn't mean everybody that went was spiritual, but if you were a middle-class American, if, even if you were an upper-class American, you went to church. And it was status. And i am got to say that while that is beginning to wane in our society today, while that is beginning to become less and less popular, it is still the reason why many people will go to church is because it is the status Thing you go to church, you go to your little Christian country club, and you sit there on the pew and you nod your head up and down while the the pastor preaches. You you close your eyes and raise your hands while you sing, and and you leave, and you have you feel good inside, and you have the status of being a church member and on the church roll. Other people follow Christ or go to church because of tradition or family heritage. Well, why do you go to church? I don't know. I guess I just go because well, my mom and dad went. I can't tell you how many people out, out uh, uh, inviting folks to church I run into, and you say to them, you say, well, where do you go to church? Well, and they give you the name of their church. Well, 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 how did you start going there? Well, I was taken there as a child. They're not going to that church because they love Jesus. They're going to that church because it's tradition. It's their family heritage. And i got to say, that's the wrong reason to follow Jesus. Some follow because of the possibility of financial prosperity. The possibility of financial prosperity. Let me just say this morning, be very careful about watching preachers on TV. Be very, very careful about that. A lot of those folks out there, they want to get in your pocket. They want your money. They promise you that if you will send money to their ministry, that God will prosper you. Let me tell you who's getting prospered. They are, not you. You know they they ride around in in uh, in Maseratis and Bentleys and they live in some of them live in two and three million dollar homes and they wear several thousand dollar suits and they they've got all the fixings and trimmings of life and and they're living off the back of suckers suckers uh, listen if you're here today because you think somehow you've given yourself to the Lord by giving up a morning to come to church that God's going to drop several hundred dollar bills in your bank account my friend you have a wrong interpretation of the scriptures we love him why because he first loved us we don't love him so that he'll love us you understand the difference now God will pour down blessings on you but those don't always come in the form of dollar bills Sometimes those come in the form of a trial that God's using to grow you. Sometimes that comes to the. Uh, sometimes that comes through a, a smile that someone puts on your face, or or, or just a, a God blessing your life in many other ways. But do not follow Jesus because of some sort of misbelief that He's going to financially bless you. Some follow because they feel an obligation to do so. Well, I guess I have to follow the Lord because if I don't, He's this big mean ogre in heaven with a stick and if I'm not if I miss church and I don't put my tithe in the offering plate and, and I don't pass out tracts where I go and, and I don't read my Bible and pray, he's gonna whack me over the head. Look if you're if you're serving the Lord out of obligation, again, you're following the Lord for the wrong reason. Some attend church, here's a big one and I have, have this down on my notes here. I shared this this morning in the eight thirty service some attend church because it makes them feel warm and fuzzy inside. Warm and fuzzy inside. I want to go to a church where my ears get scratched like a dog. And I just feel great because that preacher builds me up and he encourages me. He looks at me every week and he says, You can make it one more week. Coming to church, there are times where the pastor needs to preach encouraging sermons. To the downtrodden. And I preach those here. But sometimes the preacher needs to step on your toes a little bit with truth. I read a quote this week. It said, The church you attend, the preacher that you listen to, ought to either make you hate sin or hate him. Hate sin or hate him. You ought to hate your sin. Or you ought to hate the guy that's preaching against your sin. And I'm not saying this to brag. I try to use a, the, the proper disposition in preaching against sin and I try not to be mean and nasty and ugly about it. But there are people in this area that don't like me very much because of some of the stances I take because I stand where the Bible stands. And I've got to say that if you don't like me because of truth, then I've got to turn you over to the Lord and let Him deal with you. I'm not here to necessarily make you feel warm and fuzzy inside. I'm here to preach the truth. Now, some of the Bible is going to make you feel good. Sometimes some of the people come to me and say, "Oh, I love listening to you preach. You inspire me. You make me feel so good." And I'm glad I at times will help encourage you. While the word of God, preach from the pulpit, ought to comfort you, it ought to also convict you. And if you're going to a church where you're just comforted and you're never convicted, my friend, you got to find the right church some follow and attend church because it makes them feel warm and fuzzy inside if any of these are your principal reasons for following Christ and attending his church then you're you you're now following him for the wrong reasons you're not following Christ for the right reasons and i i guarantee you there will be some of you in this room right now you won't be in this church or any church in 12 months you say pastor why would you say something like that? Because I've been going to church for 33 years. And I can tell you, people drop out every year. Now, I hope it's not you, but it could be. And it's not that they get upset with a pastor and go find another church, a good church. They just quit going. Why is that? Because they're following Jesus for the wrong reasons. This morning, the purpose of this sermon is to give you a gut check. Why are you following the Lord? And I don't care if you're a deacon or on staff here or if you just loosely attend. It is something we all need to constantly evaluate. I propose that we are to follow Christ not for what we can get out of Him or or how it makes us feel, but rather for what we can give back to our Savior. Why, Why should we follow Jesus? We should follow Jesus because of His love and what He constrains us to do. As we consider our third and final story from John chapter 6 this morning, let's consider eight observations that revolve around this question, why are you following Jesus? Uh, question, or point number one, observation number one this morning is this, the crowd's misdirection. The crowds and misdirection. Look down at verse number 22 of John chapter 6 there with me. The Bible says the day following when the people which stood on the other side of the sea saw that there was none other boat there save that one wherein his disciples uh, were entered and that Jesus was not uh, with uh, his disciples into the boat uh, but that his disciples were gone away alone. Howbeit there came other boats from Tiberias nigh unto the place where they did eat bread. After that the Lord had given thanks Uh, When the people therefore saw that Jesus was not there, neither His disciples, they also took shipping and came to Capernaum seeking for Jesus. And when they found Him on the other side of the sea, they said unto Him, Rabbi... When camest thou hither? Now, before we get into the meat of the point here, notice the title they used for Jesus. They called Him Rabbi. The word Rabbi means teacher. They had not accepted Him as being the Christ, the Messiah. To them, He was still just a teacher. He was maybe one of the prophets, and still for them, a prophet on trial. We'll see more about that in a minute. The backstory here is that Jesus fed the crowds, slipped away when they weren't looking, put his disciples in a boat, sent them across from Tiberius over toward Capernaum, he escaped up into the mountains so that he could pray. The crowd, they didn't go home. They hung around Tiberius, And they waited for Jesus to come back down out of the mountain. They were going to be hungry in the morning and they were wanting to feed him. And so morning came and there was no Jesus coming out of the mountain. And I would venture to guess they put together a search party. Maybe they got a couple of arms length apart and, and spread themselves out, and over the mountain they walked looking for Jesus. And they went through and looked for him, and it just didn't make any sense. There was only one boat. The disciples had been pointed to them and sent away. All the other boats there in Tiberias were accounted for. It, it was a nasty storm out the previous night. Certainly, he didn't, he didn't walk around the sea. Where did he go? They, they couldn't find Him. So what did they do? They hopped into boats and they rowed from Tiberius over to Capernaum to look for Jesus. And when they find Him, they say to Him, how did you get here? How did you do that? How did you go from the mountain over here? We were watching. How did that happen? And Jesus um, didn't step up and say, well, <laughs> let me tell you, in the middle of the night, I walked on the water. He didn't say that to him. Uh, uh number 2 we see the crowds motives the crowds motives Jesus was asked how he got there and he pretty much ignored their question and he went right at their heart's condition look down with me at verse 26 of John John 6 verse 26 the bible says Jesus answered them and said verily verily I say unto you ye seek me not because ye saw the miracles but because ye did eat of the loaves and were filled labor not for the meat which perisheth but for the meat which endureth unto everlasting life, which the Son of Man shall give unto you, for Him hath God the Father sealed. Christ had performed a miracle that was extra special. Maybe, maybe one of the greatest miracles He performed when He walked on earth as far as just being spectacular. 5,000 plus people fed with five barley loaves and two small fishes. Wow, they must have thought. If we can hang around this guy, then he'll feed us for the rest of our lives. Rest of our lives. Here we get into the motives. Why were they seeking Jesus? Was it because they were impressed and thought he was God? No. No. Letter A, we see they desired to please the flesh. They desired to please the flesh. Look down at verse 34 of John 6. The Bible says, Then said they unto him, Lord, evermore give us this bread. Lord, evermore give us this bread. They wanted to be fed. They wanted someone who would feed them constantly and who would uh, help them to have their belly filled. And you may remember just two chapters back in John chapter 4, Christ met the woman at the well and there He uh, used a similar uh, metaphor with her, a similar example with her, where He said that He was the living water. Now, Christ wasn't actually living water, but He was using it to say, listen, if you'll drink Of what I have to offer, it will quench your eternal thirst. It will give you eternal hope. It will provide for you salvation. Here, he's trying to do the same thing with the crowd. He is calling himself the living bread. He's saying that they can partake of the eternal bread by believing on Him. Now, let me help you understand. Christ is talking in metaphoric terms about the eternal. But the crowd cannot get their minds off the meal of the five loaves and two fishes. They cannot take their minds off the earthly. The crowd is thinking earthly. Christ is talking eternal. Many people follow Jesus for what it does to their flesh. They they pick a church based on what it does to their flesh. Many times I'll go out, follow up on someone who's visited our church. This has happened multiple times. Many, many, many times. Both this church and other churches I've worked at. You sit in their living room and you talk to them and their questions are all, many times, their questions are all based around what can your church do to make me feel good? What can your church do to make me feel good? The truth is some of you are sitting here today because this church makes you feel good. And i got to say that you are just as guilty of following Christ for the wrong motive as this crowd was. We're not to pick church we're not to follow the Lord based on feelings. We're to follow the Lord uh, based on our love for Him. And we're we're to follow the Lord based on uh, what is right for our soul and our spirit, not what's good for our flesh. When I was a teenager, I um, lived in the state of Alabama. Uh, when I was a 14-year-old, I didn't say Alabama. I said Alabama. I, I had a very thick southern accent when I was uh, 14, 15 years old and uh we lived in the church parsonage my dad worked there at the church and i came walking across the uh, uh the uh field there between the church and the school and i opened up the mailbox i took out the mail and walked inside i tossed it down on the kitchen table as i was accustomed to do and and i noticed on the top of the pile was a very colorful brochure and the brochure was from a seeker sensitive church how many of you are familiar with a seeker-sensitive church member uh, movement. Any any of you here familiar with that? The idea of the seeker-sensitive church movement is we will have church on your terms. We're going to make church palatable and enjoyable in a way that you like. And I noticed on the front of this brochure it said, a new church is beginning in your area and we want you to do church your way. And so I opened up the brochure and on the inside of there was a tear-out survey that you could fill out, you could seal, and you could send back with postage that had already been covered. And on that survey, it said, what are the things that you would like to have at church? Here were some of the boxes, as my memory serves, uh, that uh, that could be checked off. They included music concerts, low-pressure giving, sermons that comfort the heart, a community feeling, shortened services, no altar calls. And I remember thinking, What is this? What is this? This is this is a startup church that is trying to be built on the people's flesh. My friend, that was exactly the problem here. These people wanted to follow Jesus for what he could do for their flesh. Many people many people will pick a church based on how it makes them feel, and I gotta say, that's the wrong way to go about it. Listen, I uh many people have this attitude. They say I want to surround myself with people that look, smell and act just like I do. I don't want this church to be a Christian country club. Let me make sure I'm very clear about that. Listen, uh, if you uh, know how to use deodorant, praise the Lord for you. Use it, amen. You know how to take a shower on a regular basis and you know how to do your hair and put on makeup, gals and you know how to uh, match your clothes, guys, and and you can stumble in here and, and and have it all together. Praise the Lord for you. But that person who walks in the back through the door and their hair's mad and they don't smell just right and, and maybe they've got a tattoo on their neck and, and and they don't talk like we do, they don't act like we do. Listen, I want them to feel welcomed and loved here. This isn't meant to be a Christian country club. This is meant to be a salvation station for the lost. Many people go to church for the wrong reasons. Let me just say while we're on this uh, uh, point here, I'm going to chase a rabbit trail just for a moment. And, and I feel that it's necessary I do this. Many of you have followed the news and you've seen what's going on down in Virginia and just the, um, the controversy that's ensued. Let me say, I work to stay away from politics as a pastor. I, I don't watch a lot of news. I, I read a little bit and I watch just enough to know what's going on. I don't want to become consumed with it because I don't want it to filter into my preaching and be uh, preached uh, out of balance or out of line. So I work to stay away from politics. I don't endorse candidates, none of those type things. But let me just say that uh, sometimes what goes on in the world infringes on church and the Bible. And when that happens, I do feel an obligation to say something. I mentioned something Wednesday night, but I feel it deem it appropriate to say something here again, is that racism is a sin. Racism is sin. Racism does not belong in the house of God. Racism does not belong among the people of God. Listen, God loves everyone the same regardless of the color of their skin. And you should too. You should too. Look, if you have a problem with someone based on the color of their skin, you have a very shallow mindset. You need to get on your knees and you need to get right with the Lord. There's no place for that in this country. There's no place for that in this church and uh, I'm very thankful that White Oak Baptist Church is a multicultural church. We have people from all kinds of backgrounds and colors. And I want everyone, no matter the color of their skin or their background, to feel welcomed and loved here. That's the goal. That's the aim. And I believe most of you work hard to help us with that. But only you know if deep down in your heart you have a racial problem. And if you do, then you and God have some talking to do. And you have some confessing to do. There's no room for that in this church. There's no room for that in this country. People go to church based on the way it makes their flesh feel. And i got to say, that's a wrong reason to follow the Lord. Letter B, we see they desired political freedom. What was the motives of the crowd as they sought out Jesus? Well, they wanted Him to feed their bellies. We'll see more of that in a moment. They desired for Him to bring about political freedom. You you may know uh from reading through the four gospels that the uh the people here, the the Jews, they were under Roman persecution or Roman tyranny. Uh they uh did not have political sovereignty and they greatly sought it. They greatly wanted it. And uh, we see multiple times that the disciples of Jesus were pushing Him to lead a political revolt and to set up Israel as its own country again. In fact, in Matthew 16, Peter stands toe-to-toe with Jesus and says, You can't die on the cross. you got to lead us into political freedom. And, and, And Christ calls Peter the devil. Calls them Satan. In Luke seventeen, the Pharisees demanded uh when the coming of the kingdom of God would be, and they wanted it right then. They wanted uh the the Christ, the Messiah, to come and lead about a political revolt. Look look with me at John chapter six and verse fourteen. Here we see that this was the intention of this crowd following Jesus. The Bible says, Then those men, when they had seen the miracle uh, that Jesus did, said, this is of a truth, that prophet that should come into the world. When Jesus therefore perceived that they would come and take Him by force to make Him a king, He departed again into a mountain Himself alone. Now, um, uh, they wanted to take Jesus and set Him up and make Him the king. And let me just tell you, this is very dangerous here. They They had their ideas of what the Christ should be. And they were searching to make the Old Testament fit their opinions. Can I tell you, there's a lot of Christians that way. They have their own ideologies and opinions, and they try to get the Bible to fit around what they believe. No, no, no. We ought to come to the Bible with a blank slate and say, the Bible is truth. And I'm going to allow my opinions to be based around Scripture, not make the Scriptures be based around my opinions. And they knew in their hearts that the Messiah, the coming Christ, had to lead a political revolt. And so, here this man is feeding the multitudes with loaves and fishes. Let's take and force him to be our king. They wanted political freedom. Their motives... We're impure. Now, as I said earlier, I don't dive into politics in the pulpit, but let me just say, as far as the Christian's role when it comes to politics, here's what it should be. Number one, vote with your moral conscience in mind. Vote with your moral conscience in mind. When you're looking at two candidates that are running for office, whether it's local or national, look where they stand on moral issues first. And vote according to what uh, uh, pleases the Word of God from a moral conscience. There will come a day and time... Well, we're not given an option that will please our moral conscience. When we get to that bridge as a church and as a people, biblically we'll work to cross it. Number two, read the back of the book. Christ wins the political scene. One day Christ is going to set up rule and reign in Jerusalem and He's going to have a theocratic government. He is going to call the shots from Jerusalem. I've got to tell you this, I'm not real worried about it. Uh, there's people who are just obsessed with what's going on in the world and what's going to happen in our country. and what's going. To... It's all going to play out the way God wants it to. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to be consumed to being a good Christian and being kind to my neighbors and loving the Lord with all my heart. And I'm going to leave all the rest of that up to the Lord. Number one, uh, we see the crowd's misdirection. Number two, we see the crowd's motives. Number three, we see the crowd's method. The crowd's method. Now here's where we really get into the heart of the sermon. Look down with me at verse number 28 of John 6. The Bible says, Then they said unto him, What shall we do that we might work the works of God? Now, as I prepared for this sermon, and I read that verse, I thought to myself, they're actually asking a pretty thought-provoking question here. The crowd is asking Christ a question of great significance. Now, please see here that there's a little bit of a verbal spar going on between Jesus and the crowd. There's a little bit of a cat-and-mouse game even being played here. The crowds are irritated with Jesus because He disappeared on them. They track them down, and in a spirit of frustration, they say, Rabbi, how did you elude us? Christ is frustrated with them because He knows their hearts. So you've got a frustrated crowd, and you have a frustrated Jesus. And the crowd says, how did you elude us? And Christ doesn't answer their questions. Instead, He looks at them and says, you only are seeking Me because you're, you have the wrong reasons in mind. Your motives are impure. The crowd kind of takes the chastisement, stops for a minute, gathers together, figures out what they want to ask the Lord, ask ask Jesus, this rabbi as they see Him, and here's the question they ask. Tell us, what should we do that we can do the works of God? Now, the question sounds like a good question, but the premise of their question is all wrong. The premise of their question is all wrong. Before I get further into that, let me say quickly, deep in the heart of every human being, There is a desire to try to erase the guilt that sin brings about and to try to do it on our own. In fact, if I go out uh, attempting to share my faith with others, and as I did yesterday for a while, and I I shared earlier how I got to lead Israel to a profession of faith, and he bowed his head and trusted Christ as the Savior. You know, when I asked Israel uh, what it took for a person to get to heaven, you know, he gave me the most common answer people give. You know what he said? Well, you gotta try to be a good person, and you you gotta try to earn, you gotta try to do more good than you do bad, and and God will maybe one day let me in. You know, if I ask ten people the question about how to get to heaven, nine of them answer like that. There is a desire in our heart to try to erase our sin through good works. But that's not the key. You might remember Naaman, right? Naaman in the Bible, he had leprosy, just like he was covered with the disease of leprosy. We are all covered with the disease of sin. We can't get away from it. Naaman went and found the prophet. He went and found uh, Elisha there, and Elisha said to him, uh sent his servant out to say to him, Wash in the Jordan River seven times and be clean. And that just infuriated Naaman. I, I can go back to my country and I can do it my way. Remember, the servants of Naaman came to him and said, if he had asked you to do, to do, to do something difficult, would have you not done it? Well, of course I would. Listen, how simple is it just to wash and be clean? You might as well give it a shot. Naaman goes down to the Jordan River, dips in seven times, comes up, he's clean. What's the principle there? Wash and be clean. They wanted to know, uh, the crowd wanted to know, what should we do so that we can earn, a week, so we can do the works of God? What shall we do that we might work the works of God? And that is a false premise in the question. There's nothing you can do to work the works of God. Many religions have tried to answer that question. Islam says fast. Uh, They set apart the month of Ramadan for that purpose. Catholicism says, Do penance, earn indulgences, say masses. What shall we do that we might work the works of God? Torture your body. Perform prodigies of physical endurance, says the Hindus. Keep the law according to the traditions of the elders, Said the uh, the rabbis, uh, the crowd's method for pleasing God was simple. It was do works, do works. And they came to Christ with this premise of what works must we do to do the works of God. And their whole mentality uh, was based around this concept and what they wanted Christ to do. They said they wanted Christ to articulate the particulars of how they could please God with their work-based salvation. Will you please tell us a specific set of things that we are to do so that we can work the works of God? And again, here's that verbal sparring. They come to Christ and their method is works. And their method was wrong. Their method is wrong. There are two types of religions in the entire world. There's the religion of doing that says I must do to get to the afterlife whatever that particular religion calls the afterlife, and whatever the particulars of the doing, if you do enough of whatever it is, then the God in the afterlife will accept you in. And then there is the done. The done. Doing says it's on me. Done says it's on Christ. Done says Christ did it on the cross. And by faith, I just have to accept it. Most people who are sitting in a church today around the world have a doing mentality. And while their motives and their method is just as sincere as the crowd, my friends, sincere people split hell wide open every day. Because sincerity gets no one to heaven. You may be here today and your method has been do, 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 do enough to please God. I'm here to tell you, you can't. You say, well then what do I, how do I, How do I get to heaven? Well, Christ answered the question. Number four, we see Christ's mandate. Christ's mandate. What was that? You must believe. You must believe. Look down at verse 29 of John 6. Jesus answered and said unto them, This is the work of God, that ye believe on Him whom He hath sent. This is the work of God, that ye believe on Him whom He hath sent. How do you do the works of God? Christ's answer, you don't. You cannot save yourself. You can't do it. You can't work hard enough for God to let you into heaven. You cannot do God's work. God must do God's work. God must do God's work. How does one get saved? Well, He gives us the answer in verse 29 in a word. It says that ye, that next word, believe. ye believe on Him. Faith, faith. I know almost all of you in here pretty well. Not everybody, but most of you in here I know pretty well. Most of you have a personal relationship with. I've had multiple conversations with you, and, and, and most of you in here, I'm confident that you are saved, that you have believed. To those listening uh, via the internet or maybe listening on CD, if you have not put your faith in Christ, quit trying to earn your way to heaven, bow your head and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord of your life. Bow your head and admit that you're a sinner. Bow your head and admit that Jesus died on the cross for you. He became your sin. Uh, uh, He rose again from the dead. He has the, the power to forgive your sin and to give you that home in heaven. That is the only way you get into heaven. But for those of you in here that are saved and those listening that are saved, how do you do the works of God? You know, there's only one way you can do it. That's through faith. You can't build a Sunday school class. But by faith, Christ can build it through you. You can't build a bus route, but by faith Christ can build it through you. Uh, You can't lead anyone to the Lord, but by faith Christ can present the gospel through you. You can't give money to the Lord in a way that pleases God, but by faith Christ can do that through you. No matter what it is in the Christian life that service without faith it is impossible to please Him. How do you do the works of God? You do it by faith. Number one, we see, say it with me here, the crowd's misdirection out loud with me here number two the crowd's motives the crowd's method number four the uh, christ's mandate number five we see the crowd's misunderstanding the crowd's misunderstanding now to say that the crowd was lost and confused at this point is a grave understatement they saw jesus as nothing more than another one of israel's prophets They did not and they would not accept him as the coming Messiah unless, unless he was willing to feed their stomachs and give them political freedom. That was the only terms in which they were going to allow Christ to be, or rather Jesus to be the Christ or the Messiah. Letter A, we see their comparison. Their comparison. Look down at verse 30 and verse 31. And I gotta say, the more I studied this and the more it unfolded, the more baffled and, um, Bewildered I became at this crowd. Verse 30, the Bible says, They said therefore unto him, What sign showest thou then, that we may see and believe thee? What dost thou work? Our fathers did eat man in the the desert, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Hold up, guys. You just watched Jesus take five loaves and two fishes and feed five thousand plus people buffet style. And you're going to look at him and say, what sign give us, give us, uh, do you give to us? You're going to look at him and say, show us more so that we can see and believe. You know what their attitude was? Hey, you claim uh, to be, G- you claim to be the Christ? Prove it to us. We won't believe until we can see. Till we can see. This blows me away. Their attitude was, you fed us miraculously once, Pfft, big deal. Moses called down a manna from heaven for 40 years. Can you do that? Now, when I was a child sitting in Sunday school, and my Sunday school teacher was up there saying, he took five loaves and two fishes, and he fed all these people. You know what I was sitting there doing as a little kid? Whoa. That's amazing. You know what they did? Big deal. Big deal. Do it again. Do it again. If you're taking notes, can I encourage you to write down this quote? Here's the quote. Miracles breed a craving for more miracles. Miracles breed a craving for more miracles. You did it once, Christ. Big deal. Do it again. Do it again. The Bible tells us it says that it is an adulterous generation that seeks after a sign. And I know Gideon sought for a sign and look, I got to admit, I don't know how all that fits together in Scripture, but I've got to say be careful about asking God to do a miracle for you to prove himself. It's not a good place to be. It's not a good, good way to live. Heard a story about a Bible college student. He went to college in the South. He was dating a young lady and everyone had told him, you know, that you guys aren't good for each other. You shouldn't be dating each other. And many of his staff members had told him that. Many of his peers had told him that. But he was just in love with this girl and and he was determined he was going to marry this this young lady. And so he uh, checked the weather forecast during a Christmas break. Most everyone was gone home for this, the, the Christmas break. And, and he saw that uh, it was supposed to rain that night. So he took a napkin and he put it out in the middle of the parking lot. And he said, Lord, if you want me to marry this girl, let this napkin be wet in the morning. This is a true story, by the way. And so that night, one car pulled into that particular parking lot. And guess where it parked? Right over the top of that napkin. And boy, let me tell you, it poured and poured and poured, straight down. Wind didn't blow, just straight down. In the morning, the individual who drove that car, right after the rain stopped, got in his car and drove away. The young man woke up, came downstairs. Everything in the parking lot was wet, except that one square where that car sat and where his napkin was. The story is he still married the girl anyway. Look, don't seek for a sign. Don't seek for a sign. You see these miracle workers that slay someone in the forehead and say, Be healed in the name of the Lord. Look, uh, that was in a time, uh, people doing healings, those kind of things... That served a purpose to validate folks that were writing the Bible. Uh, that era is dead and gone. Uh, we don't do that anymore. Uh, uh, don't be a miracle seeker. Does God ever do miracles? Of course He does. And God is not bound by any rules or dispensation. God can do whatever He wants. But uh, don't be like this crowd that is seeking for more miracles beyond the goodness that God has already done. Let me just say this morning that the fact that God took this old wretched sinner behind this pulpit and Wash away my sins and took me off the path of hell and put me on the path to heaven, that is enough of a miracle for me. I don't need them to do anything else. God is good. God is good. Letter B, we see their confusion. Their confusion. Look down to verse 32. So, they say to Jesus, they say, well, if you are so great, then prove it and give us more signs and feed us like Moses did. Verse 32, then Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Moses gave you not the bread from heaven, but My Father giveth you the true bread from heaven. You know what Christ is saying here is, uh, you all indulged on the miracle, but you missed the message of the miracle. Now we'll get into what the message of the miracle was here in a minute. But He was telling them, look, you enjoyed the fleshly end of it, you missed the spiritual application. And then He corrects their history books, their revisionist history. He says to them, it wasn't Moses that gave you the bread. It was My Father in heaven which sent it down. Yeah, Moses was the leader that fed your forefathers as they walked through the desert and the manna fell every day, but it was My Father which sent down the manna from heaven. It was My Father that did that. And then He sort of looked at them and this is what He told them, you all are more blessed than they are because I am the true bread of heaven, and I have been sent to you. To you. They were confused. You see, their eyes were on the earthly. Christ's eyes were. We're on the eternal. Christ was trying to use an example of their hunger and their desire and the feeding of the breads and the fishes. He was trying to take that analogy and bring it around to make a simple application that, hey, just as simple as it was for you to take the bread and eat it, just as miraculous as it was for the bread to come to you and for you to partake of it, it is just as simple for you to call on My name and believe on Me for salvation. But they couldn't see it. They were confused. Number six, we see Christ's message. Christ's message. The rest of the chapter, or almost the rest of the chapter, Christ has a back and forth with the crowd. Christ does most of the speaking, where he's trying to relay two very, or rather, one very simple point. The crowd just didn't get it. Letter A, we see his simple metaphor. His simple metaphor. Look down with me at verse thirty-five, John six thirty-five. Jesus speaks to them in very plain terms, as the Bible says. And Jesus said unto them, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. I am the bread of life. Notice the metaphor here. Jesus isn't actually a loaf of bread. He's using a metaphor. Look down to verse 48. Again, Jesus says to them, "What is this?" Thirteen verses later, "I am the bread of life. Your fathers did eat man in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which cometh down from heaven that a man may there uh, may eat thereof and not die." Now, the, what is the difference between a metaphor and a simile? Any English majors in here this morning? How many think you know the difference between a metaphor and a simile? Anybody? Miss Rachel, do you know the difference? Maybe. Um, uh, uh, I got to tell you, before this sermon, I didn't know the difference, but I looked it up. This Rachel's our proofreader around here. If it's got errors in it, she didn't get to it. If it doesn't have errors in it, she got to it. She's very good at what she does. Um, let me give you, the, uh, let me help you understand here with the difference. A simile. This is a simile. Life is like a box of chocolates. I'm gonna stop the quote right there. Amen. Can't believe I just quoted Forrest Gump from the pulpit. <laughs> Unbelievable. Life is like a box of chocolates. Now, the word like. Life is like a box of chocolates. The simile has the word like or as in it. A metaphor leaves out like or as. Here's a metaphor. Life is a battlefield. Life is a battlefield. Now, is life actually a battlefield? No, but there are parallels that can be drawn, right? Between life and a battlefield. Christ is not actually a loaf of bread. But there are parallels between partaking of a loaf of bread and becoming a Christian or being saved that can be drawn. So when Christ says, I am the bread of life, He is using a very strong metaphor to say, listen, this is simple. You come unto Me and believe and you will never hunger spiritually. Let her be His strong message, His strong message. Now, to get to a passage here in John 6 that has thrown many people for a loop. And i got to tell you, in my young Christian life, I would read this, and I was confused at this sermon. But I hope by the time you walk out the door today, you understand it a whole lot better. Look down at verse 53. This is going to sound weird at first. But we'll get to a strong explanation here in a minute. Verse 53, Then Jesus said... Then Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Except ye eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, ye have no life in you. Whoso eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood hath eternal life. And I will raise him up at the last day, for my flesh is meat indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He that eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood dwelleth in me, and I in him. As the living Father hath sent me, and I live by the Father, so he that eateth me, even he shall live by me. This is the bread which came down from heaven, not as your fathers did eat manna and are dead. He that eateth of this bread shall live forever. Now, let me just really quick sum this up to say this is not talking about chewing on Christ's arm or drinking His blood. That's not what this is talking about. Again, this is a metaphor. God is using their physical hunger... Their desire for Him to feed them spiritually to draw an application of how to inherit eternal life or how to be saved. The key to understanding 53-58 through is to back up to verse 35. Look back with me at verse 35. This would be a good little Bible study for everyone here. And if you mark in your Bible, I'm going to encourage you to underline a couple of things here. The Bible says, And Jesus saith unto them, I am the bread of life. He that, and then underline the word cometh, he that cometh to me shall never hunger. Underline the words cometh and hunger see the parallel there if you come you will not hunger so uh, anywhere we see the concept of eating we can substitute the concept of coming okay the rest of the verse and he that believeth on me shall never thirst so anywhere we see the idea of drinking we can substitute the idea of believing so mark the words cometh and hunger and the words believeth Uh, And thirst, okay? Now, with that in mind, let's look back at verse 53 and verse 58. And anywhere we see the idea of eating, we're going to put the idea of coming. And anywhere we see the idea of drinking, we're going to put the idea of believing, okay? Verse 53, Then Jesus saith unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Except ye eat the flesh of the Son of Man, or, except ye come unto the Son of Man, and drink His blood, or, and believe, ye have no life in you. Whoso eateth my flesh, or cometh to me, and drinketh my blood, or believe in me hath eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day; for my flesh is meat indeed, and my blood is drink indeed, he that believeth or he that eateth my flesh or he that cometh and drinketh my blood or believeth dwelleth in me, and I in him, as the living Father hath sent me, and I live by the Father, so he that eateth me or cometh to me even he shall live by me. This is the bread which come down from heaven, not as your fathers did eat manna and are dead. He that eateth of this bread shall live forever. Now, I just have to say really quick, this is a very important passage for Catholics or former Catholics to understand. Let me ask this question. How many of you in here at some point uh, were, w- would have labeled yourself Roman Catholic? Would you raise your hand? Wow. That's like two-thirds of the auditorium. Okay, you can put your hands down. Very important for you to understand, all you former Catholics... The body, or rather the bread and the juice that we take when we take the Lord's Supper, that is not the body and blood of Jesus. And the Catholics use this passage to say that it is. Jesus was drawing a metaphor here. He was using an analogy to say, you must take of the bread of life in order to have your eternal hunger satisfied. They did not stick a needle in Christ's vein and run His blood into their mouth. Do you all understand that? This was a very simple explanation, but this sermon offended the multitudes. I mean, it deeply offended them. Number seven, we see the disciples that were miffed. The disciples that were miffed. Look down at verse 59 of John chapter 6. These things said he in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Many, therefore, his disciples, when they heard this, said, This is a hard saying. Who can hear it? When Jesus knew uh, in Himself that His disciples murmured at it, He saith unto them, Doth this offend you? Skip down to verse 66. From that time many of His disciples went back and walked no more with Him. Then said Jesus unto the twelve, We also go away? How many of the disciples that day left? Now there were 5,000 plus who enjoyed the barley loaves and the fishes. Most of them followed across the sea to where Jesus was. Most of them were standing there and all but twelve left. Why? They left because their motives were to have their flesh satisfied and not the eternal. Christ looked at them and said, I'm not going to feed you the way Moses did in the wilderness. I'm going to give you a better bread. I'm going to give you eternal life. And they said, don't want to have anything to do with it. They were miffed. Number eight, and lastly, we see the disciples that Christ maintained. Disciples that Christ maintained. Look back with me at verse 67. Oh my goodness. When you take the whole story into account and then you read these verses, boy, it just really touches your heart. The Bible says, Then said Jesus, Son of the Twelve, will ye also go away? Then Simon Peter answered Him, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. And we believe and are sure that Thou art that Christ, the Son of the living God. Peter, you get it. You understand that it's not about what we do. Rather, it's about who we believe. And believing is the key to taking in the bread of life. Peter, you get it that following Christ is not about what you can get from Christ, but rather what you can give to Christ. Peter, you get it. It isn't about being selfish. It's about being selfless. Selfless. Let me ask you a question this morning, Christian. Why are you following Jesus? Are you doing it for what you can get out of it? Or are you doing it for what you can give to Him? It'll be a happy day in your life when you realize it is not God's job to revolve around you. It is your job to revolve around God and His purpose for you. And if you're following Jesus for the wrong reasons, at some point, Satan's dark will sink you out of church. Satan's attack will see that you no longer are his disciple and that you walk away as well, just like the masses did. The question this morning is this, are you going to be the myth disciple or are you going to be a disciple that Christ maintains? Are you going to follow Christ for who He is? Or are you going to expect Him to acquiesce and become what you want Him to be? Let's have our heads bowed and eyes closed this morning. Thank you so much for your attention. I want to take just a moment of have a time of reflection in your heart.